This is Charisma Connection. I'm Chris Johnson. You know, there's always more to learn on the subject of human trafficking. And today we continue our series with the Samaritan Women and its founder and executive director, Jean Allard. We'll talk more with my guest on how her organization helps trafficking victims right after she brings us this important message. Domestic sex trafficking is being called the human rights crisis of our times. This insatiable and unrestrained trade takes a child of God and turns that person into a product, destroying them physically, mentally, spiritually. Can you even imagine the level of abuse and isolation a victim experiences? The Samaritan women can. They have been serving victims of sexual exploitation for over 12 years and are joining us at Charisma to share their experiences and call the faithful to rise up against this evil. We have to address the demand and prevent further victimization. We also have to stand in the gap for those who have already suffered horrific abuse. The Spirit has moved the Samaritan women to raise up qualified shelters across the nation. So when that one child, that one woman, is able to leave, there's a qualified Christian program ready to receive them. Please join us in this important series and prayerfully consider lending your support. To learn more, visit sheltercareusa.org. Jean, once again, welcome to Charisma Connection. Thanks for having us back. Well, your organization has this long-term restorative care program that serves trafficking victims across the country. Now, I was wondering, and I think I know, but maybe our listeners are not sure where the Samaritan women's name comes from. Uh, Could you tell us why you chose that name and why you felt it was important to call your ministry that? Sure. You know, a lot of times people think that we are referring to uh, the Good Samaritan in the naming, but we actually uh, chose to use John 4 and the story of the woman at the well. Mm-hmm. largely because what we wanted to embody was uh, not the focus on where she's been and what she's done, but we wanted to embody uh, Christ's stance in that encounter with that woman. Um, he met her with non-judgment. He engaged with her. Um, he met her where she was. And that wanted, we wanted that to be the, the anchor of our relationship with these survivors, is meet them where they are in a non-judgmental way, and let them have an encounter with Christ um, through that occasion. So John 4 really is our anchor. But let me tell you this little story of something that happened to us. We always thought that we were centered on that, uh, that encounter piece. But about three years into the ministry, uh, we had a group of volunteers on our very large property, and they were cleaning out some of the land uh, landscaping type of thing. And one of the volunteers comes running up to me and says, you, you've got to come see this. Now, the backstory was I had gotten some feedback that people were saying that our name was too Christian. Hmm. And, and I was rolling it around in my head, but I didn't share that with anybody. I just was rolling around in my head, you know, maybe they won't understand what we do because of our name. So that was my private thoughts that only the Holy Spirit could know. Mm-hmm. This volunteer comes up to me and says, you've got to come see this, you've got to come see this. And we walked about a quarter of an acre to this ravine area, and the volunteers had moved away all this brush, and they'd uncovered a well. In that moment, I knew. The name stays, 
Because if God's going to go through the trouble of giving me a well to tell me (laughs) the name stays, that's the way I took it. Definitely ties into John 4 and the woman at the well. Absolutely. Oh, that's that's great confirmation. So You know, and then there's the other piece. Let me just tag mm -hmm, this on the other piece that is so important that took us years to be able to understand. There was a there was a time I want to say about seven years in where the Lord kept saying, Go read it again, read it again. And my goodness, I'd read John four so many times. (laughs) And he said, Go read it again. And this time the spirit said, had my eyes rest on verse 39. Because of her testimony, many believed. And that made it so clear to me that the work that we are doing is not about the baggage that she brought to the well. The work that we are doing is what she's going to release so that when she goes back to her Samaria, whatever that is for her, Mm-hmm. Her testimony is going to be life changing. And mm. that was an important reorientation of our focus to say, verse 39 is really the work that we're doing. Hmm. And it's also not just about that one woman, but going back to the community. Because many believed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Ah, mm-hmm. Love that. Well, uh, sometimes it pays to go back to the scripture again. <laughs> Many times. <laughs> and read it afresh. I mean, it becomes very familiar, so sometimes we lose those things. Well, uh, when you say shelter, and I know you have your uh, institute, and you'll have to remind me of the name just now, the Institute for mm-hmm. Shelter Care, I believe. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you say shelter, um, what exactly does that mean in this case? Yeah, it's a bit of an umbrella term. And what we refer to when we say sheltering is actually a variety of models that all include some form of residential care. So if you think of it in the vernacular, it's, it's programs with beds. Hmm. There are, in um, the anti-trafficking work, there are certainly ways of engaging that don't involve residential. So you think of uh, church groups that get involved in street outreach Mm-hmm. Maybe they go to clubs. Maybe they have an online outreach. There are some churches that are even doing text-based outreach hmm. to as, a, as an effort to create relationship with this disenfranchised population. And those are vitally important because the large part of what they're doing is they are dispelling the lie that nobody wants you. Mm-hmm. So when we, you know, it's just so I can't say enough about how important it is. It's it's hard work to go, you know, night after night, day after day, um, and just have these couple of minutes of an encounter with somebody who is on the firing lines of this tragedy. But it's so important because they've been so indoctrinated to think nobody's out there. Nobody cares about me. There's no hope. There's no place for me to go. So these frontline workers are really entry points that in that one moment that that woman thinks, well, maybe, maybe, then there's an invitation to come into different kinds of shelters. So under that umbrella term, we have a variety of different types of sheltering programs that fit into a continuum of care. Do you ever tie yourself in with some of these churches working in these other types of ministries? 
We think it's vital for all the shelters across the United States, the residential programs, to be connected to those frontline workers. They may be a source of victim referral. They certainly are going to know what trafficking is looking like on the front lines. So, and then sometimes in the, you know, in the tragic cases that a, a survivor leaves a program and she goes back, you might encounter her again. We've, we've certainly had that experience. In fact, there's a, a woman in downtown Baltimore now who was in our program for a while. Uh, drugs called her back. And she's back out on the street. And it's tragic, but we haven't lost contact. And I still go down there and, you know, visit with her. I mean, it's heartbreak, and I come home and cry a lot. Hmm. Um, but it's where she is now. But I want her to know we're not gone. And when she's ready to try again, um, there'll, there'll be an invitation. Wonderful. So how long was she in your program? She was there. Uh, she was largely uh ordered by drug court to okay. be there, so mm-hmm. it wasn't necessarily her choice. Mm-hmm. Um, she was there probably seven, eight months. Okay. And so you do see some people come through drug court. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, sometimes we'll get referrals coming out of jail, um, uh, pre-release from prison. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes these are individuals, they don't have anywhere to go. And so they're going to be thrown back into society and expected to be able to make it. And they don't have job skills. They don't have employment. They don't have housing. Um, So there really is an important role, I think, that we as the church can serve in that post-incarceration role to help people get back on their feet um, and help them reenter society with greater stability. There's certainly a lot of steps to getting someone ready to have life on the outside, right? It's it's daunting. It's it's daunting even for our kids who graduate college, mm-hmm. uh, and they have all the resources available to them. So mm-hmm. it's even more so difficult for somebody who doesn't have those resources. Well, going back to your Institute for Shelter Care, I understand that you study what victim services are available across America. What have you learned? Yes, we are making a very careful uh, study of who's out there, um, what's their capacity, what's their demographic of the victim population that they serve. And we update our numbers every month because this is also a pretty dynamic landscape, meaning um, tragically some shelters start uh, and close, um, kind of like a new business. Uh, there's a lot of volatility in this space. And the work is so hard, I think, as we've talked before, sometimes people don't realize the the toil and the toll spiritually that it's going to take to do this kind of work. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, um, as of, let's say, February of 2020, we have identified 136 shelter programs, so programs that offer some form of housing across the United States. Um, Of those, uh, 39 programs serve minors, uh, 14 programs serve men and boys. Our greatest need is still for programs that serve women with their children. Hmm. Um, That's a very tough population to place. The majority of the programs across the United States serve females, um, but there is, as I mentioned, programs that serve uh, non-binary and males as well. So we're learning that the average capacity of a shelter program is about six to eight beds, 
which means that most of them are operating out of a basic residential home. Hmm. You know, these are not institutional structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, this might be the house in your community on the cul-de-sac. Uh, and that's a great thing. Um, people shouldn't be afraid of that uh, because really what we're trying to do is is help people uh, socially reorient and reconnect. Um, so what better place than in a home, in a community, in a family setting? Yes, just to be in a normal home in a normal neighborhood. That's That's got to speak loudly. Well, I'm glad you said that because the number one desire that women have articulated in our program is the most difficult. But when we say, what what do you most want more than anything? And the answer is almost always the same. It's to be normal. Hmm. Now, most of us know there is no such thing. But, <laughs> 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 but we know what they mean. Yes. Um, because uh-huh. largely it means to belong. Mm. That's really the the undercurrent of what that heart speak is is saying is I want to belong. I want to fit in somewhere. And to normalize means I belong somewhere. So that's that's a, a way we have to think about the idea of normal. Mhm. Now you mentioned 136 shelter programs, 6 to 8 beds each. That's that's like nothing. Uh, you know, is. when it compared to the industry. Right, right. We're looking at maybe 1,100 beds across the United States to serve um, an extraordinary population. I mean, Texas just did a study that said 79,000 minors are trafficked in their state alone. Hmm. So we're not even scratching the surface of the need for shelter care, which is why we have this initiative through the Institute to call the church to rise up and to help us fill the gap, um, offering more services along a continuum of care, engaging in this work, supporting existing shelters, et cetera. Yes, I would think that, you know, Jesus, when he called us to make disciples, there was a multiplication effort and, and a commandment. And I think that's what you're trying to do when it comes to serving this population, to multiply the shelters, to multiply the uh, qualified volunteers and professionals who are helping these people. Absolutely. I think if the verse that that uh, calls us to it the most is, you know, the fields are ripe for harvest, but the workers are few. Mm. And that's mm-hmm. where we are right now. Well, where do you think the biggest gaps are? Well, certainly in being able to offer uh, housing, shelter care, it's the number one expressed need, whether that comes from law enforcement, victim advocates, uh, service providers, uh, we've got to close the gap on giving people short-term and long-term housing. So Mm -hmm. along our continuum, that might include emergency care, and that's generally for 72 hours. If If you think of somebody is apprehended uh, in, in a raid, and law enforcement needs to put them somewhere for their safety uh, to buy some time to figure out who is that person, where do they need to be, where do they belong, who are they connected to. So emergency care uh, is vital to work alongside with law enforcement. It's a very specialized type of care, um, but it's extremely short-term. It, it literally is to avoid uh, what, unfortunately, some jurisdictions have to do is they have to put 
uh, a kid or an adult in jail because it's the safest place to put them. Mm-hmm. And so to avoid incarceration, we need the emergency shelters. The next along the continuum is what we call stabilization. You might refer to that as short term. So that might be three to six months. That's where the individual literally is stabilizing. They are uh, removed from the the damage, uh, the, the trauma. There is a lot of uh, assessment going on to figure out what are the needs of that individual, everything from medical needs, uh, psychological, relational, etc. And a, a plan needs to be built for that individual. We believe that a number of uh, folks will move on to long-term care, and that is oftentimes a year, two years. Ours goes up to five years, and that's really helping somebody build a whole new life academics, vocational, spiritual, social, life skills, uh, and that takes a long time. And so the, the long-term care space is also uh, um, in great need. Mm-hmm. And then we've recently, in the last couple of years, seen what's called either graduate or independent care, which is after somebody has gone through a therapeutic program and they are let's say, three-quarters of the way ready to do life on their own, but they still need help. Um, So we call it supportive, independent living. Mm -hmm. And that can be putting somebody in an apartment, but they still have a case manager, or they still have sobriety coach. Um, There's still community that they're connected to. Um, You know, Chris, the, the, the biggest thing that we see with people who are gone through the program, the therapeutic program, is that once they have finally formed a community and they have that belonging that I was talking about, mm-hmm. the idea of, well, now you're going to be independent actually scares them. Yes. Because they're like, I finally found a place to belong and now you're going to tell me I'm on my own again? I mm. don't want that. Mm-hmm. So it's so important that we don't break the community bonds in making that transition. Because at that like point they go- can revert. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, It's like when your kid goes off to college, you know, they want to know that they can still call back and say, Mom, I got a flat tire. What do I do? (laughs) Or come home for the weekend. Mom, can you do my laundry? (laughs) Exactly. I need some home cooking or I've got the sniffles and I need to be babied. (laughs) We all know what that's like. Yes. Well, it's a very long process, isn't it, to bring a trafficking victim out of their victimhood? It is, because what we fail to recognize, um, and I know some people don't like calling it modern-day slavery, um, Mm. because of all that slavery evokes in our mind and in our hearts. Um, But there there is a phrase in our field that I think helps us understand that that slavery is appropriate but it might not be the chains and the shackles around the ankles or the wrists. Um, modern day slavery is the chains on the brain. Mm-hmm. And if you can get that, uh, let that sink in, that we, we do understand this in a way, whether we think about Stockholm syndrome or trauma bonding, um, we all want to connect to something and oftentimes to someone or to a people group. And as we've talked before, if as many, the majority of this population has been victimized as children, 
they're still looking for connection, security, relationship, uh, bonding, and sometimes that's to very toxic people. But it takes a long time to undo those connections, those, you might even call them soul ties, Mm -hmm. um, which is very real in this work. And it takes a long time to build a basis of trust, uh, to invite that individual to let go of those ties, and to to accept a new kind of relationship, a new kind of, of, of being with others. Well, there's a certain kind of attachment that even the scripture warns us about when uh, we associate sexually with another person outside of marriage. And uh, I think you're you're referring to that really in in some ways when it when you talk about soul ties or attachments or bonding issues. You know, I had a woman one time, and she was um, pouring into scripture, and she was trying to understand. Uh, her trauma and she came to me and she was she was pretty upset and she said you mean every person I've ever been with is now a part of me Hmm. and she says I don't know how to deal with that Mm -hmm. it was really important I think to her spiritual understanding to know that that doesn't have to mean um ongoing trauma, but for her to understand that that is the way God designed sexuality, is that you become one with. And so she had to reframe. It wasn't a transaction. It was literally a a spiritual connection, albeit in her case, bad ones. Mm -hmm. But I was excited about the fact that she was grappling with that issue because Therein lies the hope that as she moves forward, the way she will think about intimacy in the future will be that it is spiritual. Mm-hmm. It would be great if the whole country thought of it that way. We yes, are kind yes. of in a place right now where we're, we, we don't see the spiritual side of intimate connection and, and need desperately to reclaim that. Well, thank the Lord that he breaks chains. He breaks the chains Amen. of bondage. Amen. Well, there's a lot of work to do in human trafficking and in what you do there at the Samaritan Women. How can the church, you know, whether that be a denomination or a congregation, help? Yeah, there's, I mean, we, we, as we've been talking, we think that this is the call to the church in our current day and and cultural times, that uh, the way in which we look at relationships uh, and in particular, intimacy, um, there is an absence of any kind of moral um, foundation. And uh, I won't get political about that, but I think anybody who can just, you can see all around you that there's a, an erosion of any kind of moral baseline or um, plumb line for what is right and good for us in relationship with one another. So I think the church must engage in some of the issues that we don't want to talk about. Uh, We need to talk openly about pornography. And because we've got 11 and 13-year-olds is the largest population uh, that is consuming pornography in our country. So it's kids that are marinating in this toxic 
material. Um, and it's affecting their brains and the way they view one another and the way that they will carry that into relationships going forward. I saw a Pew study that said 68% of youth pastors are addicted to porn. Hmm. That's we've bad. got a problem. <laughs> yes. we've, we've got a problem. Um, and so all of that is, is part of where we need to engage. We certainly see that the church is not demonstrating, or at least the Christians are not showing that we have a lower divorce rate than those who are outside of faith. And so marriages are, are suffering right now. And because of that, we see children are suffering. Um, a vast majority of children who are, get exploited came from broken homes mm-hmm. so or single-parent homes in particular. So the church can certainly engage in that. Um, foster care is a huge call to the church to engage. Um, the State Department says that about 60 percent of children trafficked in the United States came somehow intersecting with institutional care, like foster care. Hmm. And um, and so we could do a better job of engaging um, good Christian families to take these kids into their home um, and provide them safety uh, and, and right teaching. So those are some of the huge ways of prevention that if it seems scary to jump into sex trafficking, get on the front end of the issue and be a part of uh, decreasing the pipeline of victimization. Hmm. Um, let's prevent the problem. And uh, the problem starts a lot with, with kids and, and the way we talk about intimacy um, and the way we model in our own behavior, right intimacy. Well, that's a good good word, Jean, and, and a good way to end this very enlightening conversation. Is there anything else you wanted to add as we close? Well, I just want to remind your listeners to, at their leisure, uh, go to our website, learn more about what we're doing with this initiative to raise up more shelters across the United States so that, uh, one, we have more workers in the field, uh, but also so that anyone who would intersect with one of these programs has that verse 39 opportunity uh, of going back into their Samaria with a testimony that will ultimately change others. Um, it is it is an exciting time for the church to engage in this issue in a strong way. Yes, indeed. And your website is sheltercareusa.org. I want to give that again, sheltercareusa.org, and that will put you in touch with the Samaritan women. Thank you so much, Jean Allert, for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Jean is the founder and executive director of the Samaritan Women and the Institute for Shelter Care. So we we really appreciate all of her expertise that she brings to us and helping us understand this difficult topic of human trafficking. I'm Chris Johnson. Thanks for joining us for this special series here on Charisma Connection. And be sure to check out the other episodes at cpnshows.com. That's cpnshows.com.